Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen, and I'm joined by RCD editor David Craig. Today, we are talking with Jamie Roberts, the director of a new documentary on HBO Max, Escape from Kabul, about the chaotic evacuation of civilians from Afghanistan in August of last year. Roberts is also the director of Four Hours at the Capitol about the January 6th riots. Jamie Roberts, welcome to Hot Wash. Thanks so much for having me on, John. Absolutely. Um, so uh, I watched the film recently. David watched the film recently. And uh, I'll let David give his take. But for my part, uh, it is harrowing. It's pretty difficult to watch. Uh, I encourage people to watch it. I think it's a great film. Uh, really well done. In in some ways, you know, it's like four hours at the Capitol. And then it, it tries to bring a clarity to the timeline of an extremely chaotic event. So it's it's restricted to essentially that period where uh, Biden officially announces that the last date is uh, is the end of August and what the people on the ground actually experienced and trying to make sense of something that for as heavily as it was covered really was difficult both at the time and and in retrospect to understand what exactly was happening. What was your take on the film? Why did you decide to do this? And uh, how did you decide to frame it this way? Um, Yeah. So um, when we came to the, like, like you said, the event was extremely chaotic. And I think that the images that we saw in the news, there was some great journalism, journalism around it, but those kind of 18 days, um, you know, the couple of days before where the Taliban were rushing towards and then into Kabul, which triggered the evacuation. Those images were so chaotic um, that it was difficult to understand what was going on, what the geography was, who was involved, you know, what that really looked on the ground. We were just seeing montages of chaos, really, and it had no sense to it. So really what we wanted to do was um, like a little bit like we had done on um, Four Hours at the Capitol was to kind of pick the frame and pick the focus and be very narrow and deep with that. And that was, okay, and, and I suppose our way in, we spoke to lots of people from the Afghan government, um, the State Department, the um, people in D.C., the chief negotiator for the U.S., the British ambassador, but we really focused down to um, the Marines, the Taliban. These were These were the people that were, I suppose, right on the front uh, if you're going to say the coal face or the hinge location, you know, they're the facing the each spear, other. <laughs> we call it. Exactly. That's what we were trying to do. We were trying to get right to the tip of the spear. So you start to actually focus right down a bit like in four hours of the capital, you're talking about at the end of that film, it was the tunnel. This is where, you know, everything came to be. And that was in this film, really, it, it was all at the Abbey gate, North gate, East gate, Abbey gate. And that was where the Marines were manning that. And it was, it was through meeting the Marines and interviewing a lot of Marines that, and a lot of other people that we really started to narrow the focus. And we felt like the way into this film was through the Marines because they, they came out, they were t- down on the ground two days before, then all hell breaks loose. And really the story starts from there. We, we did, we interviewed and researched wider and we did consider having a whole first act about how do we get to this point? And, but really, right. I mean, you could have started anywhere along the line you from you could have the, started nine eleven. Yeah, yeah you exactly. could have started. You could have started with the Russians in the seventies. That's the thing. You start, or even the British over the last two hundred years. It's you start to go. Okay, well, where 
where do you start that? Whereas we wanted to keep the focus is right. the evacuation. It's just turtles all the way down. It's you know, back yeah, to, and, yeah, and that's that's it's important, but that's kind of a, a huge book or a huge series. And really, we're talking about just this event, and that we wanted to focus on that because I, I think. Um, People, or it's a politicized event, and we really didn't want to approach it in a political way. We wanted to get to the the meat of what happened, almost as if you're in a courtroom. You know, right. this is witness A, witness B. This is Talib C who did this. Right. These are right. these guys. Now make your mind up, kind of thing. And you 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 really lucked out with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Richardella, who's the uh, the CEO of the First Battalion, Eighth Marines. Uh, is so really. Uh, Cogent and clear, and but also I think extremely human in admitting. I think it's difficult as a commanding officer to admit, uh, as he does, I did not know what to do, and that emotion comes through. But his competence obviously also comes through. Uh, talk about finding him and building his trust to be able to get get that interview. And it's really Richard Richardella kind of is like Fanoni kind of forms the spine of of the the events yeah i mean so we've been talking for quite a long time with the marines and intermediate the marines initially the access wasn't there they weren't going to do anything with the media and i think there, but we uh, there was a there was a um i think a groundswell within the marines to want to tell this story but it was from elsewhere that the stop was coming we heard it was from dc from the administration um for whatever reason the access then did open up um, and we we worked very closely um, with Major Alex Lim, uh, discussing the film and discussing the access. And he he gathered together people. We were talking about who we wanted. People were right there on the ground. And then we talked about different people. And um, Richard Ella came up, and and some of his men, um, and some of the others. And then yeah, when he we got to the base, I mean, it was quite. We we didn't really know what we were going to find because you know Marines don't have a huge amount of time, especially senior Marines, and so. In comes Richardella. We have a bit of a chat. We sit down, and he—he's obviously an intelligent, articulate, and he remembers things. Just he's a brilliant storyteller. He can tell you a story in a bar, which is exactly the kind of style that you need for a film like this. It needs—it's—it kind of rests on the power of the storytelling. But he was also right there trying to command his men. So he's telling you this story, and he's obviously told it to some of his friends. And I think there had been something for posterity within the Marines, but outside. Outsiders haven't really heard it, I don't think. So we, I'm sitting there for the first time. He's yeah. the first guy that walks in, and then we just kind of, you know, our mouths drop to the floor. I'd already been in Afghanistan for two months, but here's a guy who can actually really break the event apart from start to finish. And and then his uh, his men came in, Gunnar Callan, uh, Major Jordan Eddington. They were fantastic, and you start to kind of get these different perspectives on the event. Um, and the Marines coming on board really really made took the film to another level i think so david craig uh you're a retired marine i'm i'm sure your your heart was with all of the marines there who were who were experiencing that talk to us about what your takeaways were from the film well you know i went into the movie blind i wasn't sure what it was going to be but in retrospect i'm y'all both of you kind of touched on it. it for me it was a first per- person eyewitness account of the events that took place that day the parts that were a little bit odd though were like i it was interesting to me that how you got the interviews with the taliban and and that kind of thing it was just interesting to yeah, see I, these I people i want to know everything about that like <laughs> we the, can talk about talk the, about that next but sorry david go i mean ahead. many of these people were familiar to me because i was there uh 
with our, another editor with us, uh, John Waters, um, in 2011. So I knew some of these characters from reading the reporting and, and what they had done. So, <clears throat> so I was kind of torn as whether there should be a qualifier for <laughs> the comments that these characters were making or not. Um, just because the, not you, but some of the other media, you know, were had a tendency to sort of miss not get the whole big picture per se of, of what was going on over there with the Taliban, how, how truly bad many of them were. Um, and the mistakes that we made were always amplified and multiplied. But the thing I've really enjoyed with what you did with, especially with the Lieutenant Colonel is it was an impossible situation that he was in and the way that he handled it was quite remarkable. And I thought he was even rather humble about, how he handled it. But, but I mean, what else was he to do? Because it was a catastrophic leadership failure at all levels of government in the United States, in, in my opinion. And um, it would take some intensive research by a journalist to figure out <laughs> where all the holes were there. But I mean, it was interesting. You, I mean, one interesting thing you had mentioned is just how stark it was that the first thing they did when they got there was to evacuate the entire embassy. So any infrastructure we had to conduct an, uh, a mass evacuation, we just sent home right when we got there. So we took a, what was about to be an impossible situation and just made it, multiplied it even further by evacuating anyone that had the capability to coordinate any sort of, um, organized evacuation if that was even possible at that point yeah it was interesting actually with the um embassy because we did really look at that and the drawdown of the british and the u.s embassy and actually uh, you know the the u.s were quite striking in that i think that the uh, acting ambassador was away for quite a long period beforehand and a lot of people were away with due to covid um and i think that i got the sense that the military were quite frustrated with the lack of um, cooperation they'd had with the embassy, a huge lack of cooperation, that it, to the point where I think the embassy actually refused to, to plan, whereas the British had kind of planned. They had the Baron Hotel. They had some plan in place. The Foreign Office all went on a holiday. There's problems there. But with the Americans, it was striking that they, they didn't seem to want – the embassy didn't seem to want to engage with what the military was saying. And the military was saying, we need to make a plan now before it's too late. And then it got too late. When I was in Iraq, uh, uh, my last two tours, I worked at the Ramadi Government Center in Al-Ambar province, and they had improved the comp My last tour, I was stunned almost at the improvements they made to the compound for us to stay out there, and I asked what was going on, and they said they had done it in order to hopefully have the State Department folks that were mentoring the provincial governor to stay out there, but apparently... It didn't wasn't up to stuff, and ironically, the State Department representative was uh, born in Iraq, and yet it was not sufficient for him to stay out there. So, I empathize with the State Department as far as funding, but sometimes you wonder if they aren't trained, or we don't have enough personnel that are equipped to handle these sort of dire situations in adverse environments, such, such as Afghanistan and Iraq, I suppose. And you, and you really touched on that well, I thought. Well, not to criticize the ambassador, but he was, he had only been in for a very short period of time in what was an absolute key period. Because we knew that in 2018, this deal had been signed with the Taliban. 
But that ambassador, Ross, uh, the Chargé d'Affaires, the acting ambassador, was only brought in in 2020. To, uh, you know, his period was 2020 to 2021. So he's almost been thrown in there right at the end of this whole thing. He's not really, he's not worked in Afghanistan before. I, I find that quite crazy, to be honest. You, who, who else would do that in such an important position? Let's circle back to the Taliban. Uh, talk about how you got those interviews and and just what they were like. Yeah, so in an immediate way when the event happened, um, you know, everybody left Afghanistan. And there was this, there is this kind of window for the Taliban were saying, initially there had been Taliban giving interviews, but there were kind of spokespeople red to gobs almost. But we wanted to get down to the soldiers, the fighters, the people that had faced the Marines and that we'd seen in the videos you know, waving their guns around. And we kind of started to, we understood by speaking to quite a, doing quite a lot of research that actually you could get into Kabul. It wasn't that easy to get there. Once you're in, if you play things right, there are ways that you can get interviews, you can get in a room with people. You know, it's, it's a kind of a big city, but it's, a, you know, the green zone alone, that's, everyone's left the green zone, but you've got the Haqqanis are staying there, the Talib government are staying there. You know, it's a, it becomes quite a small world. So I went there for two months and we were meeting people every single day, drinking tea with the Taliban, trying to go in for literally going to the location. So there was Taliban at the Abbey Gate. There was, and I was finding through these networks who was where. And I was always trying to find well, who was there when the bomb went off, who was riding the motorcycle first into the city. We wanted to make sure and then checking their CVs, if you like really going and triangulating who they were. Like, is this person a commander? Is this person who they say they are? So, for example, the suicide commander who's in the film, he was involved. He, he was on the phone to Haqqani um, whilst we were doing the interview, and he was involved in two attacks on, I think, the Serena Hotel and the uh, Intercontinental Hotel. You know, he's he was released. He, was, he had a death penalty. He was in prison. He had a death penalty, and he was released during the prisoner exchange that was agreed for with the Taliban, with the US and NATO allies. So, you know, these guys, you could, we, we dug into their backstories to make sure we had the people that were there, either through, say, for example, there was a commander Fateh who was there. He was on the Abbey Gate facing the Americans, you know, on his phone. He had all his videos of doing just that. And I met his 130 odd men that he commanded and they were the ones that were there. So it was it was a kind of process of trying to pick carefully through the very much the ground level guys but then also going to the top level um there was this kind of decree that taliban apart from spokespeople weren't meant to speak to the media especially the western media but they're a disorganized force i mean even the right, u.s right. It, even the u.s and the british will say actually they're quite impressed by some of the fighters but um uh you know when they actually got to see them face to face as much as they disliked them but the communication you know they're not regulated it's almost like having a police force where you know, one set of cops might beat someone up, another one might take you to the jail, another one might not care, another one might ask for money. All of these things go on. So you never really know how they're going to react. And the same is is true just interacting with them. You know, you go to a checkpoint and some will get really angry and all of a sudden you think you're getting in trouble. Other times they'd invite you for tea when they understand that, like, I'm just interested in what happened. This is a moment of our history, but it's a moment of your history too. And some of them understood that. And they, they also, they don't live as much as... Um, some of their rhetoric may be from, you know, a lot not, not recognizable to us. They still, they all have, you know, they have mobile phones. They, they make video, you'll have seen the propaganda videos they make for themselves. They know the power of recording and documenting things. So that it's the, not the, alien to the, the, what uh, we're doing. The, the, the footage of the, of the Taliban special forces clearing the base 
after the last flight had left. I, I, I mean, it was just, uh, can you talk specifically about where that came from? The, I guess it's yes, a, it, so that, that came from, that was shot. So the Talib who shot it was in the film. He's, I met him in the now director of the airport's office, who I spent a long time in because you, you just have to sit for hours and hours and hours and drink tea. But he was in the office and he, he saw my, we got chatting. He saw my camera and he was saying, you know, I was there. Um, and then I was like, you know, really? And then he was like, yeah, I filmed some of it. And then I was like, let's meet for tea. Let's meet for tea. Let's meet for coffee. Let's, so he'd bring his men. We have to sit there and I'm trying to explain to him. He's obviously extremely distrustful, but at the same time, I think he, he understood that his video, you know, and, and the, what their experience was, what I, I, what I was saying to him was like, he was understanding. He was getting the fact that I was like, well, look, the Americans left. You were there with your guys in this historic moment and you documented it. Why not say your piece, show us the video, show us what really happened? Because, you know, especially in today's age, everyone's talking about fake news, propaganda, you know, that's the, you've misrepresented this or that. So I think anybody on, on all sides, you can say, well, just show us the video. We'll go through it. Tell us what happened. And if you think we misrepresent you, then so be it. We're the Western devils that you think we are, whatever. But I think he would watch it and he would think, actually, that's a fair representation of what did happen. You know, the Americans left. They went in and they found everything had been smashed apart. They start firing their guns in the air and they, they take the base. And then they're all extremely jubilant if not a bit pissed off that all the hardware has been smashed. Yeah, I would just recommend if someone watching it, maybe ask a veteran how to <clears throat> parse through the Taliban perspective. And although at first I told you I was kind of upset by it, but ultimately I think it is really important just to get their perspective, no matter how you know biased their perspective might be. It's still very interesting just to hear what they felt about everything that took place, you know. It's not just our perspective, which ours is somewhat biased as well. It's just that I think the truth and reality sometimes varies a lot more with them than it does for our, our troops. And I, I think I think when you're watching it, the, the, because it's that that um, a chronological narrative uh, in the way that it is. When you're watching it, I think you can tell. You know, you can see when. We, we purposefully didn't give the, a platform to the Taliban to grandstand and all the rest of it. You know, they, they did all that in the interviews and we had much more footage around that, but it was, it was just trying to get them to say, okay, so what happened when the bomb went off? What happened when this happened? And That's it was actually you did you know, great. Well, that, that, when it happened, I was, you know, you see the image, I was like, I, I wonder what these guys think, you know, the guys who were riding in on the Hiluxes. And actually that was what the British and the American military personnel was like, what did they say? Because they're fascinated. Like, what the hell are they thinking? Right, right, right. Right. So yeah, that, I that think, felt like we're doing it for the right reasons. I think I underappreciated what you did there and just sticking to them telling their story of the events that took place and nothing else, really. Yeah, we kind of, we, we cut away any, and actually I've, I've seen some people saying online, didn't you ask them about, you know, the fact that these people were running away and, uh, uh, and it was their fault. And it's like, yes, of course I did. But then they just go into their own rhetoric and they start giving themselves a platform and explaining themselves. So we're like, no, we're not going there. You know, they, they do say we wish they didn't leave because they should have, you know, we don't want them to lead the American way of life. Well, that kind of explains to you. They think everyone should just stay with there with them. And that's what they say. But you don't want to give them any more than that because then you're giving them, then you are platforming them. Well, yeah. And just the, I mean, the juxtaposition of the Taliban in their interviews are like, why is everyone running? Like, you know, and then the, 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 the refugees who are going through such extreme uh, conditions just to try and get in that gate. 
and it, it, it it's all you need to say. You you don't need to have the voice of God chime in and say the Taliban are actually really bad people. I, I think the other Afghans who are terrified for their lives, especially the women, uh, for the changes that the Taliban will bring and have brought, uh, it it's, it speaks volumes. In in a way, do you think that keeping the the perspective, the framing tight and small and chronological is either in the service of getting access or, or not service of, but uh, is, is a strategic decision to actually get that much access and that in both on the, the U S and the Taliban side, I mean, I, I don't know if you tried for, you know, Millie or, or McKinsey or, or, you know, or, or Donahue or any of the, the other uh, folks did, up, up the chain, chain of command. So we so we did we did try for them. Um, DoD were just not um, they didn't want to play ball. I didn't think they have with anybody. Maybe they will further down the line. But I think um, we we also interviewed people like Zalmay Khalilzad, the, the negotiate the negotiator on behalf right. of the US, who right. signed the deal with the Taliban, who many Afghans can't stand, who's Afghan heritage himself. Um, so we did go much wider. But again, I think we really wanted to frame it down in, into Kabul in those in those days because those a lot of those, those senior figures weren't there, you know, so they right, can tell you right. what it was like in the Ritz-Carlton or wherever they were having their negotiation, right. Doha. Right, right. They can tell you Miller's what it was like in, in D.C. Florida or wherever. Or, no, which I, is McKinsey, great. McKinsey's in Florida, yeah. Which is like, so they, they so you already start, you're into the political because you're at a level where they're, they're not having to deal with guys with guns facing them. And to be honest, I suppose what we... We wanted to tell a compelling story that took you in and gripped you and grabbed you through this so you could understand it. And then maybe you want to take a step back, but you can do that after the after the film. And I suppose an example is it's we're we're trying to tell a story in an engaging way, not make it feel like it's homework. And if you watch a film like Saving Private Ryan, it's a human drama set in World War II, but it doesn't tell you all about World War II. And it's kind of like this. We, we, we want to know what the, this is, a, the human experiences, the human stories caught right in the middle of this turmoil. And then by that, you'll kind of understand what happened in those couple of weeks. And then maybe you can take a step back and start to go, OK, well, where do we go now with this? And, and was it Biden? Was it Trump? Was it all four presidents? Did we get this wrong? You know, because it's quite incredible that you can literally draw the thread back to 9-11. 20 years later, we're we're here and everything that our collective countries have gone through, the trillions of dollars, the thousands of lives. And we basically just handed it back to the Taliban in a worse state than it was, it seems. Well, you gave a firsthand account. You gave people the ability to walk in a Marine's shoes for what situation they walked into just a few weeks before the final evacuation took place. I think... You know, that's the best way to sort of describe what you had done and, and a reason for why people should watch it, really. Yeah, I mean, I thought that they can walk a day in the Marine shoes that were thrown into this impossible situation. Exactly. I mean, what, what really did dawn on me is that you sit down with Marines. They're obviously intelligent. They're skilled, but they're, they're not watching rolling news all day, reading the newspaper about what's happening in Afghanistan. They were out on their boats in the Middle East. They were out here, there and everywhere. They get thrown together for this event. They know a bit, they get their briefing and they're thrown onto the ground. They're not thinking about all these political parts. They're literally, they're doing that. They're responding and reacting. And what they did was incredible because how more people didn't die, how they got that many people out was amazing. Because also a lot of those Marines were very young and they hadn't seen kind of um, conflict before. You know, they hadn't 
they were very up for it. They said themselves, like, you know, we thought we were going to go there. The Taliban were going to come out for a change and we can have a go at them because this is what we signed up for. But actually, they got presented with something very different, which was the, um, which was the huge evacuation. But people, you know, they're like 19, 20, 22 years old, dealing with this situation in, in a country they've never been to. It's kind of mind-bending. Uh, I, I, I got really broken up with the staff sergeant. Solace is her name? Maria Solis. Yeah, Maria I think Solis, she, yeah. she was incredible. I mean, I think that the – because it was thrown together quite quickly, the um, on those gates they realized they needed female search teams, so they put those together. But the stuff that they saw was obviously, like she says you – know, Was she handed. an MP? Did she even have like – she didn't ha- – I mean, uh, the, the idea of – I mean, they didn't even necessarily have that kind of training specifically of dealing with a massive – I mean, that security situation was – unsustainable it was just i mean it was it was absolutely the definition of the the worst of all possibilities um well, they, they, they'd done some training before but they said themselves that it was just not like what happened you know they do light training right. with bat, riot shields they got right. there they hadn't they hadn't got the right they hadn't got the gear they didn't have anything and they didn't have any of their people so they're like a very small group of people with their backs against the wall um and the the female search teams obviously had to come in there was a cultural element to it which was really important but they were also dealing with, so they were dealing with the women, the children, but then this kind of issue of babies being passed over them. You know, like Maria Solis says, she's just passed a baby and it's dead. What do you want me to do with that? Just like heartbreaking, crazy experience that barely anyone will have to go through in the world. You know, this is, and they're, they're, they're dealing with that on a daily basis and they don't really know when it's going to end. They're just hoping it's going to end. Was there an interview or a story that you really wanted to get in that you weren't able to or, or something that had to get left on the cutting floor, cutting room floor? I mean, we did, we did wrestle with like how much should we give more context either, either side. But I think we made the right decision. You have to be bold and find an angle in. Um, in terms of, I mean, you do these films and you just push to try and kind of find the people that you need and push through walls to get them. And the fact that we got the Marines, the Taliban, the people that we did, and the footage we got from one of the military service personnel, which is the body cam, um, you know, you don't expect any of that when you start. So in a way, I kind of never really look at it like, damn, I didn't get that. I'm like, wow, what would have happened if we hadn't got that body cam? Or Richard Ella hadn't walked in the room and started telling us the story in a way that sounds like he's from a, not a Hollywood movie, but it's like, this guy's an incredible storyteller, whatever he's doing. He can tell me about how he does his garden. Um, I think there are, there, there are some, you could do more about this subject. Obviously, I think there's a, there's a series to be made about the last 20 years in, in Afghanistan. And I think there's also m- more to be done about, um, I mean, the, some of the people that are injured actually during the Abbey Gate bombing, you know, their, their experience now and how they're recovering. I think that that is an important thing to, to, to listen to just because they've obviously given so much and so those injuries people have passed away but also the people that are injured are going you know you follow them on social media and they're going through a terrible time and that is the result of what happens with a situation like this right we've talked a lot about the marines and and uh, that story is is absolutely gripping the the interviews with the refugees is is equally compelling have you uh, stayed in touch with anyone have you followed up or have you do you have a sense of how uh, their transitions are uh, just from personal experience, knowing uh, some of the 
resettlement work that people are doing. It's extremely challenging, obviously, uh, throughout the world. The U.S. is taking a small number. A lot of other places are, are have a lot much larger uh, populations. What's what's kind of your perspective on the on the progress of the refugee integration and resettlement? Yeah, so so I've been I'm in touch with them all still, and um, the I mean in the U.S. quite a few of them they got they've got houses, shared homes. It was difficult for them to integrate and there was big challenges in the UK. I think what, from what I've seen, they're finding it harder because they've been putting in like temporary hotels, very cheap, nasty hotels with whole families. Uh, the local councils just don't have anywhere to put them or don't want to find somewhere to put them. And so they're still in them and then out, you know, over a year later and they're eating, you know, they're given like foil boxes with sliced white bread and, sliced cheese but the cheapest of the cheapest and in afghanistan they eat well you know people like cooking it's a kind of home-cooked culture and so it screws with their bodies and they're all constipated and they all have there's a lot of depression and um yeah there's it's it's dark times but they're, they're very um thankful that they got out and a lot of them i think are focusing on their children but they've they've got a lot of challenges and they all miss home you know, and uh, I think there is also this thing of like they look at Ukraine and think that, you know, in London we have people welcoming Ukrainians when you get off the get off the Eurostar, the Eurotunnel train, or or from the planes. Whereas Afghanistan, they feel like they've just been forgotten, and, and they're people that had you know their families had fought alongside the Americans, the British, or they'd worked at the embassies. You know, they had we had close ties with these people. Did you get a sense of the Afghans that did escape? Because there were stories for a while that <clears throat> many of the people that were getting out were the ones that could pay the taxes to get to the airport, as opposed to the SIVs we talk about, the ones that were had some sort of screening already that had that were verified to have helped us. Did you get a sense of, of that as well, of how many were you know, just able to pay the toll, so to speak, just to get to the airport as opposed to the, and many SIVs, even if they had the money, were too scared to go because they were afraid they'd be discovered by the Taliban and executed. But did you get a sense of that story as well? There was, what what I got a sense of was it's, a lot of people actually went the other direction. They didn't go towards the airport. They got the hell out of Kabul because they were like, let me get back to my home province away from where the Taliban are. So a lot of people went the other way and then thought, oh God, I've missed my opportunity. Um, there was on those first days, there was just anybody going to the airport. And there was a lot of people who they might not have worked alongside the the, the NATO allied forces, but they still had good reason. You know, the, the, the women who want to go to university, want to work, don't want to live in kind of subjugation, this kind of thing. Um, in terms of getting to the the gates, I think there was, they found, people found ways without having to, to, to pay. But then a lot of people obviously came up against gunfire, came up against all sorts. So I, I think there was all sorts of stuff happening there. And also I wouldn't, some of the Afghan National Army that were on some of those gates, you know, some of the behavior that they were doing, some of the violence that they were meeting out wasn't that, you know, some of the crowd control you see, they, they, their bullets were going everywhere. They were hitting people. They, they were a lot more heavy handed than the allied forces. Um, maybe because they've been allowed to do that out there. Uh, as our as our partners maybe we'd outsource some of the violence I don't, I don't know but you see in the film there's that moment where the the runway to take back control Richard Zeller says they came in and they shot you know this Afghan special forces started shooting people and, and running people over because they've got different rules of engagement um, so to get back to your point I, the taxes issue 
I didn't, it, you know, it came up a bit, but to be honest, it was more that it was just absolute chaos. And you were kind of lucky if you got through, you could have got beaten. You might've paid someone off. No one really had knew what the correct documentation was. If you had it, you still had to go through the canal, the Taliban, get out. So my, my sense was I met a lot of people that are still over there, still stuck. Lots of people that had worked for the Americans, for the British, were connected with them, maybe didn't have quite the, the right... Um, in fact, that's not... What they were doing was trying to log on or get to the, call the people that had been told would help them. And they were saying that no one ever gets back to them. No one picks up the phones. The offices have been closed. It's like they've just been left out to dry. And there were a hell of a lot of people there. And uh, the thing about Afghanistan, as you know, there's no fourth estate. There's not many journalists working there. Was, there's, there's a few on the ground very few and the Taliban closely control. So it's difficult to actually know what's going on across the country because you have like a few New York Times journalists. Uh, I went there for a couple of months. There's a really good one from the Times of London, but it's a small community and the Taliban, they were breaking in doors when I was there looking for equipment. They control journalists very, very tightly. So it's, it's very difficult to really get a picture of what's happening. But when I was there, there were so many people that had tried to get out that just that failed, and now they're stuck. David, final thoughts that you hope people will take away from the film? Yeah, I think it just gets back to, I really appreciate how you did the tip of the spear you, without trying to sway the story. You just let the Marines and even the Taliban tell their story of what took place over those harrowing two weeks. And I think it's important for people to take the time to watch this to understand what the, all these people went through, the refugees, the Marines, and even the Taliban to a certain extent, how much of their story that you might believe, but it's still important to hear their perspective. But most importantly is you gave people the chance to stand in the boots of Marines that were there and what they had to deal with leading up to the harrowing events uh, when the 13 were killed that day. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, thank you. The film is Escape from Kabul. It's out now on HBO Max. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, taking the time to, to talk to us. John, David, thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Swenson.